It was a couple weeks ago, and it was Monday night, and the enthusiasm in the Persley household was at levels that had rarely been, been seen before. We were fresh off a win. It was a win of a generation, a win like I had never experienced in my Browns fandom. We just destroyed the Pittsburgh Steelers on Sunday night football, and it was a feast on Ben Roethlisberger's tears that I could have eaten for an entire year. It was delicious. You do not know, if you are not a Browns fan, you do not know the hatred that is in our hearts, in, in a purely Christian way, I assure you, but you do not know the hatred that is in our hearts for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and it's to the point, they just feel bad for us now. Like, it's not even a rivalry anymore. Like, I have some Steeler uh, friends. Uh, they're, they're Steeler fans. They're friends of mine. And after the game, they're like, we're glad you could finally win one. Like, there was no, they don't even care. That's how bad it's been if you're a Browns fan. But they, they won. And then the next night was the national championship game. And Buckeye games in our house, are, our boys, they, they love football. They love the Ohio State Buckeyes. They FaceTime their families during some big games, and they're excited, and we destroyed Clemson. It was beautiful. It was, we were on a roll, and we should have known. It was just going to come crashing, crashing down all in the span of seven horrendous days. And that's exactly what happened. I, I, had, a, I had an elders meeting scheduled for that Monday night, and I reached out to the elders in advance, and I'm like, hey, b before I took the job at Lakeside, I told you I'd always put my family first, and I'd really like to rearrange the meeting. And they agreed, and that's just one of the reasons I love working here, uh, because we, we talk about everybody that works here. We say we expect your priorities to be God, family, and then Lakeside, and they put their money where their mouth is, and they really mean it. And I, it's just one of the reasons I love working here, and we rearranged our schedule so that I could hang out with my kids and watch the championship game, and that, that meant the world to them. So... Uh, until about midway through the second quarter. And then uh, it didn't mean the world to any of us anymore because if you watch the game, you know Alabama showed up and uh, the Buckeyes not so much. And it, they were just getting destroyed. And our boys are younger. They're 8 and 6. So we try to get them in bed between 8.30 and 9. And the Browns game the night before drug on till about 10.30 and we let them stay up for that. And we told him, you can stay up and watch the national championship game. And as the second quarter was ending, we're like, it's, it's time for bed. And we knew they didn't mind because they didn't even fight it. They're just like, yeah, this is a lost cause. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to bed. Because hope was gone. It was very clear what was going to happen. The Buckeyes stood no chance. Alabama was winning that game. That game was over. Hope was gone. Sometimes we lose our hope in sporting events. It doesn't really matter all that much. Hopefully, we've all arrived at the realization that uh, our lives aren't really impacted unless we've put a lot of money on the game. Our lives aren't really impacted by the outcome all that much. It's fun to get excited. It's fun to cheer for them. Um, but sometimes fans can have bigger responses than the players themselves can, which should tell you something. Hopefully we've gotten to the point where we realize the outcomes of the game don't really matter all that much to us. And so sometimes with like a sporting event, when we lose hope, it's not that big of a deal. But sometimes when we lose hope in our lives, amongst other things, it's a really big deal because they matter more. And this morning what we're going to talk about is how do we respond when we lose hope? How do we respond when we lose hope? And we're going to look at John chapter 11. If you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app as we see Jesus show up in the midst of one of the hardest things anybody has to encounter, and that's the death of a loved one, the death of a loved one. In fact, it's the most stressful event that people will go through. 
The death of a loved one, divorce, and, and job loss are the three biggest stressors that people will experience in life. And here we have a front row seat for how Jesus responded to the most stressful thing that people will ever experience, the death of a loved one. And that's what we're going to investigate today as we look at John 11, and we start in verse 1 where we read these words. Now, a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is fascinating to me, and this is something that we're going to have to unpack. So let's just understand the scene that's going on. There are three individuals, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. They're all related. They're all intimate friends with Jesus. There's, there's this beautiful picture that is shown to us in the Gospels of Mary, who takes this expensive perfume and anoints the Lord's feet with them, anoints Jesus' feet with them, and, and wipes them with her, with her hair. And now they send word to Jesus and say, our, our brother Lazarus is dead. He's dead. Maybe this is a road that you've walked down. Chances are we've all experienced the loss of, of someone very close to us. That impact, the heartache of one you love, either dying or the heartache when you get the diagnosis and you know realistically this is the end. There is... There is no treatment that's going to fix this. This is the final nail. This is how their life is going to end. The heartache of being in the situation where you are completely helpless and you've exhausted all the medical options available and now you find yourself just having to spend the last of their days together. That's, that's the scene that we're invited into here. This is really a transition point in the book of John. Up until this point, through the, through the first 10 chapters, Jesus has been very public in his ministry. The, Jesus, the first 10 chapters of John showcase Jesus being out amongst a number of people, being out amongst the crowds. And now, from this point on, towards the end of the life that we see in John, we're, we're given much, much more intimate view of Jesus. We're given a view of how Jesus responded to those closest to him. And the relationships are, are really examined over the course of the ending of the book of John from chapter 11 on through the end of John. This is really a transition point for us. And here we're invited into this intimate friendship of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Jesus. And Jesus says something fascinating. I want to read it again. He says something fascinating in verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is something that we have to wrap our minds around and really try to, really try to understand, because if we don't understand this, if we don't have a good theology of, of suffering, it will impact our relationship with God. And that's this question of, Illness for the glory of God. What is the point of that? And this invites us into something that's uncomfortable and frankly something that a lot of us wish wasn't true. And that is this truth, that sometimes our suffering is for a greater purpose. Sometimes our suffering is for a greater purpose. 
Now, we may wish that isn't true, and that doesn't make us a bad person. It doesn't make us a bad person to say, I wish I didn't have to suffer. And yet, we're given a glimpse here that sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers regarding suffering in the way we want Him to because our suffering has a greater purpose for His glory. And if we don't wrap our heads around this and form a good theology of the fact that there is a purpose for our suffering, I promise you when the hard times come and when suffering appears, it will damage, it will damage our relationship with God unless we embrace this fact and force ourselves to wrap our minds around it and get to a point where we understand this truth that suffering can serve a greater purpose. And so how, how do we do that? How is that even possible? And what do we do? And I just want to challenge you, if you're there right now, if you're going through a hard time, if you find yourself in the midst of suffering, maybe it is the loss of a loved one. Maybe you see that the diagnosis has gotten no better and the clock is just ticking and you, you're counting what has gone from months down to days. And there is grief and there is sorrow and all of that is acceptable and all of that is good and all of that is normal. So what do we do with this suffering? How do we respond as people who follow Jesus? And the first step, and and certainly this isn't going to be the end-all be-all, but I'm telling you, the first step, the first step to developing a good theology on suffering is to invite God into that suffering with you. The truth is, he's there. The truth is, he's in your midst. The truth is, he's walking alongside with you every step of your journey. And yet, there's something within us that sometimes feels like, well, if I don't have the right response, or if I don't say the right words, then I can't invite God to walk through this with me. And you just need to make the choice right now that some days it's going to be ugly, and some days it's going to be nasty, and some days there's going to be fits of rage, and some days there's going to be things that you don't understand. And there's going to be all of these emotions and all of these things, but a God who loves you is big enough to walk with you through those times of uncertainty, and big enough to walk with you through the things that you do not understand, and he's right beside you. So invite him into your suffering, and stop worrying about, well, if you invite God into the suffering, that you have to say everything in the exact right way, and be authentic, and be real. Your creator can handle it, and frankly, he already knows about it anyway. It's not going to catch him by surprise. So acknowledge your disappointment with God to God. Acknowledge your frustration with God to God. Invite Him into your suffering. We continue. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. This, I'm fascinated by this. That Jesus says he, there's this suffering and it's for God's glory. And yet the very next verse says, but he loves them. He loves them. Which means us experience suffering is not an indication of the lack of love or blessing of God upon our lives. 
When we suffer, it is not an indication that God does not love us or God is not blessing us. He loves them. He loves them. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what did he do? He stayed where he was for two days. Huh? What? He stayed where he was two days longer. He gets the word that Lazarus is ill. They are grieving. They are suffering. They reach out to Jesus, and Jesus just stays where he is for two days. And here's our next point on suffering. That God is going to do things we simply do not understand. God is going to do things we simply do not understand. I mean, imagine our response if we reach out to somebody and say, somebody's... Somebody's dying, and they've got the power to do something about it, and they don't respond for two days. I mean, if people don't respond to us now in 20 minutes in our instant society when we're texting them and blowing them up about something important, we're, we're wishing death upon them. We're like, they better be in a fiery car wreck right now. If they're not responding to me, this better be really good. Never mind the fact they just put down their cell phone and aren't looking at it or have their notifications disabled. In our instant society, we want responses instantaneously. And here Jesus hears about Lazarus and he does nothing. He goes nowhere for two days. We will not always understand what God is up to. We will not always understand why God doesn't act in the way we want him to act. We're just simply not going to be able to wrap our heads around it. And this is the next step that we have to, that we have to embrace in our suffering, and that is we must admit, we must admit there are times we do not understand what God is up to, and we must admit that we are not God. We must admit that we are not God. Because every single one of us, when we've, gone through, when we've gone through times of suffering, every single one of us has the fix. We do. We're smart. Every single one of us could prescribe how to make the situation better or make it disappear. And when it doesn't happen, those are the times that we just must embrace the fact that we do not understand always what God is up to, and we must admit that we are not God, that God truly is bigger and better than us. And sometimes, because of the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and we can say, God, I see it now. I see what you were doing. But we don't always have that luxury. And so my challenge to you is, especially in the big things, when you look back and you still don't have that, you still don't have that clarity, remember something where you do have that clarity. Remember something you asked for that didn't happen or something, something that didn't happen that you did ask for. Just, just remember God's goodness and his faithfulness and something smaller. And until you get it in the bigger thing, and you may never get it in the bigger thing, but cling to the smaller things and just remember and be reminded of God's goodness. So after two days, and we're just going to advance a little bit. We're going to skip the next couple verses, the next... Uh, from verse 8 through the start of verse 11. You can read that this week if you want. But the disciples basically didn't want to go. They didn't want to go to Judea because the Jews wanted to stone Jesus. Uh, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. And the disciples, maybe a little self-preservation, maybe love for Jesus, maybe all of it, were like, yeah, let's not do that. There's a death threat. You've made people pretty mad. 
Let's not go right back there. And Jesus uses an analogy when talking with him about the sunlight, and he reaffirms that he's the light of the world, and nothing will happen to him until his appointed time. And then he says this, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. I love this description that's used throughout the New Testament of being asleep. I love this description because it's just a reminder for those of us who love Jesus, death is not the final word. Death is not the final word. And it is not something that we, that we have to grieve as though it is, it is finality. It isn't the final word. And this is the description that Jesus uses to discuss death. It's a description elsewhere in the New Testament that's used to describe death. And the disciples don't understand it. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about here. So Jesus told them plainly in verse 14, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Lazarus is dead. And Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there. My wife can occasionally tell me, Brian, I think maybe there was a nicer way you could have put that. I know that's shocking to all of you. But occasionally, occasionally Brooke will pull me aside and say, I think there was maybe a more gentle way that you could have, you could have said something. And if you're like that, I just want to give you hope that our Messiah has said, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad. Okay? And you think, you think I'm a little rough around the edges? This is Jesus. Jesus said, well, Lazarus has died, and I'm glad. So for those of us who may struggle sometime with being a little genteel, I just want to encourage you, just remember these verses and just say, hey, you know, I'm just following the lead of Jesus. Here's the point. But Jesus isn't being a jerk here. His point is this, that God's purposes are greater than our understanding. That God's purposes are greater than our understanding. And this is going to be an opportunity. This is going to be an opportunity for them to see the power of God on display. So Thomas called the twin said to the fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let us also go that we may die with him. Jesus is going. They want to kill Jesus. Let's just go. We're going to die. We're going to die. This is Thomas. You probably know Thomas. You probably called him Doubting Thomas. This is the same guy who after the resurrection of Jesus said, until I put my hands in the wounds, I will not believe it. And Jesus says, here you go. Here you go. But this is fascinating to me. This is fascinating to me. The guy that we are so quick to dismiss, the guy that we are so quick to label, the guy that we're like, oh, he's the one that struggled with the doubt, and he's, his story is one of the most famous stories of all the disciples' accounts that we have in all of Scripture, that here is the guy who spoke up and said, unless I put my hands in the wounds of Jesus, I will not believe that he died and rose again. And yet here we're given a more complete glimpse into the person that Thomas 
is. And he says, even if it costs me my life, I will go with you, Jesus, even if it means my death. And I just want to remind you, our society is so quick to label. Our society is quick to pounce on any mistake, anytime somebody misspeaks, anytime somebody tweets something that they would regret or wish they could take back. Our society is so quick to pounce on people. It's so quick to label people. And sometimes when people make a mistake, they get a label that they can never shake. And that label sticks with them for the rest of their lives. Doubting Thomas. I mean, it's literally what we call the guy. Doubting Thomas. And yet it isn't the full story of who we are as individuals. None of us, none of us can be defined by one mistake. None of us can be defined by one sentence that we utter. None of us can be defined by one moment of time. And I just want to encourage you, while society may label you, while society may be quick to say this and that about you, while society will be quick to remember your mistakes, we serve a God who remembers the whole picture. And here we are told just who Thomas is. That he's willing to put his life on the line. And our God remembers the moments that others are quick to forget. He sees us for who we are. And now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Lazarus has been buried for four days. And then Martha and Mary are grieving. Of course they're grieving, the death of a brother. But I want us to notice how they're grieving. That one of them stays at home. And another, Martha, goes out and meets Jesus. While Mary stays at home, Martha runs out and meets Jesus. And this is important for us to remember, that people grieve differently. People grieve differently. Some people in moments of grief want want to be isolated. They want to be left alone. Some people in moments of grief need to be surrounded with human interaction. Some people want to talk about it and have long, somber conversations. Other people want to joke about it and laugh because it reminds them of good times. We've got to be reminded, especially when we experience the loss of people that are close to us, that people grieve differently. And just because we grieve one way doesn't mean that our way of grieving is any better or any worse than the way that other people choose to grieve. And it's important, it's important for us to remember that because sometimes there's frustration when somebody who wants to be who wants to be out amongst people, has somebody else in their circle who wants to be isolated, and they become frustrated that that person doesn't want to go do anything. And sometimes for somebody who's much more somber and reflective, they become frustrated at somebody who likes to laugh and think about the good times, and they just say, oh, well, it didn't affect them or it didn't impact them. And don't be quick to cast judgment on somebody because they choose to grieve differently than you choose to grieve. Some people want to be at work the next day because it serves as a distraction for them. Other people want to take a month off. And and just remember that people grieve differently. We see it here. 
that Mary stays home. Martha runs out and meets Jesus. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And this is faith. This is faith. That you can take your frustrations to God. You can be completely honest. And yet you still know that God is greater and He is able. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's the frustration. That's the frustration. He's been buried for four days. There is grief, there is processing, and that's the frustration. And it's open and it's honest before God. And I just want to encourage you again, in, in times of suffering, be open and honest before God. He already knows what you're thinking anyway. And yet, we see the frustration, but we also see the faith. You could have stopped his death. But I still believe you can fix this. And that's faith. Though when everything else is bleak, when it seems there is no hope and there is no way, that we believe that God is still able and God can still make a way. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. I mean, imagine hearing these words. Imagine hearing these words. He's been buried for four days, and Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Now, we know the story. We have the benefit of looking back. We know that, that later Jesus would go, and he would die on the cross, and he would resurrect from the dead. We know how this story is going to end, too. We have the benefit of hindsight, but put yourself in her shoes and imagine hearing these words from Jesus, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I mean, this is the assurance of Martha that death isn't the final word. She doesn't understand all that's about to, all that's about to happen, but she understands that even though it is bleak, there is still hope with God. This is her faith on display. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says to her, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That Jesus is the resurrection. That Jesus is the one path to true life. And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And her response is, yes, Jesus, I believe. Which brings us to a point where I must ask, what's your response? What's your response? You may know what your parents' response is. You may know what your kids' response is. You may know what your friends' response is. You may know what your spouse's response is. But what's your response? 
Because that's what ultimately matters. Is every single one of us must make our own decision. We must make up our own minds. And we must come to our own conclusion about this truth. The response of Martha is, yes, I believe, Jesus. I believe that you are God. I believe that you can experience life and resurrection through your work. But how do you respond? Nobody can make that response for you. And as somebody who loves Jesus, one of the most frustrating things in the world is you can't make that response for others. You wish you could, but you simply cannot. They must make that response on their own. What is your response? Jesus would go on, and we don't have time to look at it today. But Jesus would go on. And he would raise Lazarus from the dead. An amazing miracle. Proving, proving that God is bigger than death. That God is victorious. Oh, imagine the celebration as Lazarus is raised from the dead. As his loved ones go and they just get that one more hug that they never thought they were going to get. And as their tears dried... They begged him to go take a shower because he really had to stink after being dead for four days. But then that second hug after everybody showered and just getting to experience just some more moments. But Lazarus would die again. And Mary and Martha and John, Thomas, Because these bodies don't live forever. But our soul does. And the hope of Jesus is that when we give him our souls, that we experience life. And that our death, when we depart from this body, that which is seen as destruction and decay. Is the greatest transformation that could ever come about. When we are finally united with our Savior. And yet because of sin, that process doesn't happen until death takes place. And that leaves behind people who struggle. And that causes us to suffer. And it causes us to grieve. And I invite you, if you're there today, if you are suffering, to invite God into your suffering. To be honest about your frustrations. Be honest about your faith. Don't walk through that alone. To give yourself some grace and realize that you may have said some things that you regret. 
You may wish that you could do things differently, but that a moment does not define you. And even if everybody in your family thinks it does, and everybody in society is quick to label you, a moment never defines you to God. And that our grief takes on different forms. And while some may not understand what we're going through, and some may not understand what we're doing, our Savior does. And even when we don't understand Him, we can still cling to the hope that He offers. God, I pray that as we suffer, we would invite you in. I pray especially in the moments we don't understand what you're doing, that you would encourage our hearts, pray, God, that we'd just be honest with you about our frustrations and our faith. I pray that as we grieve things, we'd give people grace. we give ourselves grace. That we would refuse the temptation to label people because of a mistake or a sentence that was misspoken. That we would be reminded just how good you are. That even in the midst of our heartache, even in the midst of loss, You can sustain us. And you can carry us. So Jesus, we invite you to journey with us. Change our hearts. We ask in your name. Amen.